Please follow along in your own Bible, electronic device, or on the screen overhead as I read Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 20. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is put on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. <clears throat> Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. God bless the reading of his word. Well, we're continuing our series of messages on the Sermon on the Mount. We've finished the Beatitudes, and uh, we're now moving into the heart of the sermon itself. I think one of the ways to look at the Sermon on the Mount is to kind of make an analogy between it and uh, a maintenance manual that you get when you buy a car. Oftentimes, when you buy a car in the glove compartment, there's a there's a manual created by the manufacturer to help you to know how to maintain that car and to get the best use out of it and the most miles out of it before it falls apart. And in a, in a way, the Sermon on the Mount is like the maintenance manual. God, our creator, created us and has called us to follow him. And he gives us, through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the owner's manual. Uh, to help us to understand how we can live a life that's going to be positive, that's going to be fruitful, that's going to be the best kind of life that we could ha possibly have. And so if you look at it that way, we'll see as we go through it. When you get to the end, uh, Jesus uses the analogy of building a house on the rock or building it on the sand and whether your life is going to stand or whether it's going to fall apart. And part of that is because you followed the manual. If you follow the manual, you find out that things go much better in life. And so that's the, the thrust of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes that we looked at focused on the fact that conversion creates our character. 
when we come to Christ and we acknowledge that we are spiritually bankrupt and that we respond to that by uh, being broken and uh, mourning that and, and then being humbled by that, we begin to see that the Spirit of God, the, the Christ within us, begins to transform our character from the inside out. Now as we move into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we focus more on what is external and imp impacts us from the outside. Maybe the best way to understand that is to use the little illustration that uh, I've heard several times about the little boy in church who was standing on the, in the chair next to his mother. His mother was a little embarrassed because he was standing up, and so she said to him, please sit down. And he kind of heard her, but he didn't hear her. And he continued to stay standing. And so her, his mother said again the second time, please sit down. And he kind of gave her a silly look and kind of like, I don't think I'm going to do that. And so she, a little bit more forcefully, took him by the shoulders and just kind of pushed him down. And so he was sitting there with a scowl on his face and he said to her, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm still standing on the inside. That's the illustration that helps us understand the difference between the transformation of character and the transformation of conduct. The Beatitudes focused on that transformation of character from the inside. The commandments, as we will begin to look at them, focuses on the outside. Perhaps another way of understanding what's going on here is to read uh, and quote from Dallas uh, Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracy, in which he spends a lot of time looking at the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, it is precisely Jesus' grasp of the structures of the human soul that leads him to deal primarily with the sources of wrong rather than focusing on the actions themselves. He thus avoids the futility of making the law the ultimate. Wrong action, he well knew, is not the problem in human existence, though often it is constant, uh, constantly taken to be so. You see, it's more than wrong actions. It's what's happening on the inside. And so that's why the Beatitudes are so critical for understanding the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning now, we move out of the uh, information about the Beatitudes and begin to look at what the rest of the sermon is all about. And we're looking at chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. And I've broken it up into two sections this morning. Uh, it's kind of the transition between character and conduct. And the... Two sections are the nature of Christian influence, and then Jesus begins to talk about his understanding of the law and how the law applies to the Christian. So let's look then at chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Uh, this section consists of two metaphors and two parables or explanations. It's the metaphor of salt and the metaphor of light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. 
Interestingly, with the development of the explanation about the light of the world, he also adds an, a third image, that of a city that is set on a hill. And then the section concludes with this exhortation. Let your light so shine among men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's interesting that this section speaks of who we are and the influence that we are to have, but it occurs between, before the material about the function of the law. Our influence as salt and light comes primarily from who we are and secondarily from what we do. So let's look at these a little bit more specifically. Let's read verses 13 and 14, uh, uh, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Salt has a variety of functions. In the ancient world, it served as a preservative. Uh, before refrigeration, it was used extensively to keep meat from spoiling. It was used to season or enhance the flavor of food. And to a certain extent, was functioned as a purifying agent or as an antiseptic. So as we think of a, Jesus' statement that we are the salt of the earth, and think about the usage of salt in the ancient world, we begin to understand a little bit about what our role is as believers and what kind of an influence we can have. We can season the world, make it attractive. We can act as preservatives, and we can act as antiseptic. It's interesting that in both of the images, the salt and the light, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He uses two different words, earth and world, but it expresses the extent of our influence. It expresses the universal scope of our discipling ministry and our mission. It basically is a preview to what Jesus uh, is quoted as saying by Matthew at the end of the gospel where he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. The extent of our influence and the nature of our influence are tied together. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But before he moves on to talk about what it means to be the light of the world, there's a, a warning with this statement, you are the salt of the earth. It is possible for salt to lose its saltiness. If so, it ceases to be effective. Now, salt in and of itself is a fairly stable element. It doesn't easily break down. So perhaps what Jesus is referring to here is that he meant that the salt oftentimes in those days would get mixed up with chalk. And with chalk mixed up with salt, it lost its effectiveness. So Jesus might be suggesting that our effectiveness in terms of influence on the world around us is tied to our willingness to be single-minded, to will one thing, as, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about. Being authentic in our Christian living 
rather than duplicitous. You remember that the Apostle John in the book of Revelation talked about the church at Laodicea being neither hot nor cold. And because of that, they were ineffective and Jesus said he was going to spit them out of his mouth. The idea of a mixture, half-hearted, uh, being the problem of losing our effectiveness in influencing the world. Verses 14 and 15, he shifts now to the question of the light of the world. Let's read those verses. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on stands and it gives light to everyone in the house. The purpose of light is to extend beyond itself. And there's combination of these two symbols, the light and the city, both are designed to speak of our ability to be visible and to be efficient in the purpose for which we have been called. To stand out, to be obvious, that's the very nature of the city on the hill. To have a light, you put it on the stand so that it can be most effective. We know that throughout the New Testament, the image of light is important in the description of who we are as followers of Jesus. Philippians 2.15, it says, We become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. And in 2 Corinthians 4.6, it says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made this light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. Jesus called himself the light of the world. And in these two texts, it becomes quite clear that when Christ comes with and lives within us and indwells us, the light of Christ is what shines out of us and that is where the influence comes from. It comes from the, the person and the spirit of Christ within us. The last verse, verse 16, says this. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Light, by its very nature, is designed to penetrate darkness. The text is interesting because it says that they might see your good works. That they might see you and your good works. But I thought, if you go on further in chapter 6, verse 1, we read these words. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. What's the contradiction here? What are they seeing? They're seeing your good works, your good works, but they're glorifying God. Why? Because they recognize the transforming power and presence of God in your life is something that is supernatural and it's beyond what you could do. Some years ago, Becky Pippert wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker. And she made it clear that salt is worthless 
unless it is outside of the salt shaker. But I remember one of the incidents, one of the stories she told in that book was about a gal who was working with college students at the University of uh, California, Santa Barbara. And this gal uh, just was going about doing her business, but from time to time, students would come in. And one day a student came in, she said, what is it about you? There's something about you that's different. And she said, well, I think what you can see is that the Spirit of God is at work in me. It's the Spirit of God that people begin to see, and they begin to glorify God rather than the person who's doing the works. Let your works speak of the glory of God. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 6 through 8, Jesus sends out his disciples to preach. And so the question is, is that you've heard the statement, well, let, witness in any way possible and if necessary, use words. And that seems to be kind of what the, the Sermon on the Mount here is saying. But when you get to chapter 10, when Jesus sends out his disciples, he says that they were to preach the word. And so it's important for us to understand that it's both word and deed that become the influence on others. Discipleship means living our lives in an intimate relationship with the Lord so that his life is changing our life and that change is evident to others. And then we begin to explain what, how that change has come about. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine so that people can see the good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. Now in verses 17 and following, we end up looking at a whole different perspective as he begins to introduce, uh, Jesus introduces his perspective on the law and the Christian conduct. Let's read the verses beginning with verse 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless the, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now these verses introduce us to the rest of the chapter because in the following section, uh, Jesus introduced six principles or six commandments and he would say, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And it, this section begins to focus our attention on some critical issues. Uh, it focuses our attention on the difference between law and grace, on the nature and the function of the law in the life of Christ followers, and on how Jesus himself relates to the Old Testament scriptures. Perhaps there's no other section especially in the Sermon on the Mount, that has such complex material and leads to such variety of in, in, in interpretations. Uh, we could spend 
a long time interacting with this section and dealing with all the different interpretations that have been made. And I'd love to do that sometime if you want to dialogue uh, and begin to develop uh, an interesting uh, perspective on that. But while we could spend a lot of time dealing with the many questions of the passage, let me suggest a perspective this morning that describes how we are to see the function of the law as it's presented in Jesus' teaching. Again, I want to go back to Dallas Willard when he says, the law is never the source of righteousness, but it is forever the course of righteousness. That's important that we keep those two in perspective. So looking at verses 17 and 18, describing how Jesus sees the law. He says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. How are we to understand Jesus' words in light of what follows, where he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he kind of takes on the law and begins to see it from a different perspective. And it's also clear if you go through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus was accused of not keeping the law. He broke the Sabbath. He didn't conform to the purity laws that the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted him to do. So what's behind Jesus' statement? Well, first of all, notice what he says. I did not come to abolish not simply the law, but he adds the prophets. So he's broadened the perspective. He says the prophets. By adding prophets, he's broadening it beyond simply the law to the entire Old Testament teachings. So in what sense does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament teachings? Well, there's a variety of ways. First of all, in prophecy, every Christmas as we go through the Christmas season, we look back to the Old Testament of the prophecies of his of, of coming, and we see how he, even in his coming, fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah. Throughout the Gospels, Matthew says over and over again, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets, and then he quotes Old Testament prophecy. So in one sense, when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, he's speaking of the fact that he indeed in and of himself fulfilled the law in his coming and in his person. Then there's the moral law, the commandments, which we often think of when we think of the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments. Jesus fulfilled them by keeping them completely. He not only obeys those laws perfectly, but in this text, he begins to explain the full depth and meaning of the law as it was intended to be held. Then there's the ceremonial part of the law in the Old Testament. The Old Testament sacrifices and, and uh, offerings are symbols or signs that are types that are fulfilled in Jesus' coming, his death, and his crucifixion as he fulfills those types. You look for a moment, and we'll do this this morning. We've got a little time because we shorten worship music. Uh, we'll look at Hebrews for a moment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 19, just to see how Jesus fulfilled the uh, ceremonial law. In chapter 9, beginning at verse 19, uh, we read this. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people... He took the blood of the calves together with the water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, 
and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. That's the, the sacrificial aspect. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in the ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would not have suffered many times since creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's taken the symbol of the Old Testament, the signs of the Old Testament, and, and fulfilled them in and of himself. So in that sense, Jesus fulfilled or completed uh, the law. But next, look at verses 18 and 19, where Jesus now begins to talk about the, the nature of the law. Verse 18, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, uh, not the smallest or least stroke of a pen will be by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice carefully what he says here. He talks about those who break one of these commandments or teach others that to break those commandments will become the least in the kingdom of heaven. Breaking the law in this text does not change our citizenship in heaven. It changes our status in the kingdom. Notice that carefully what it says. It says if we teach others the, uh, to disobey the law or not ignore the law, it, it changes our status in the kingdom from the greatest to the least. Enjoyment of kingdom blessing is visited on how, is related to how, is not related to how we live our lives in conformity with the law. We belong to the kingdom on the basis of something else than keeping the law. Then in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpassed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here he begins to talk about the qualifications for entering the kingdom and that it is a kind of righteousness which goes beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees. It requires a different kind of righteousness. In other words, human goodness is not enough to get you into the kingdom of God. If I'm reading the scriptures correctly, the Bible speaks of a different kind of righteousness. So there's really two kinds of righteousness. There's the righteousness which comes by responding and conforming with the law. 
But that's not the kind of righteousness which will get you into the kingdom of God. There's a better kind of righteousness. And Christ himself is that better kind of righteousness. In order to make that point, I want to look at several verses this morning from the New Testament that begins to show, I think, the contrast between the righteousness which is of the law and the righteousness of Christ. In the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 21, read these words. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The law and the prophets testify to it, but it is not that law which gives righteousness. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's where the righteousness comes for those who are going to enter into the kingdom of God. Look at verse, chapter 8 of Romans, uh, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life sets me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, commandments, were powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. In chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 21 and following, it talks about uh, the righteousness of God, which is given to us. One other place in the New Testament that I want to focus on that gives us this sense of another kind of righteousness is in chapter 3 of Philippians, where Paul writes about his own kind of story of righteousness. He says in verse uh, well, let me read from verse uh, 5. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as far as zeal persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Human goodness. But then in verse 7, he says, but whatever was to my profit, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but a righteousness that comes from God. And by faith. You can do all you want. To keep the good law. And still fall short of being a part of the kingdom of God. Because it takes another kind of righteousness. A righteousness which comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Even the Old Testament, that was the case. You go back to the book of Genesis and you read Genesis 15, verse 6. And the story is that God, God is telling Abraham, he's promising Abraham that he's going to have uh, a, 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 
a legacy of many kids, and, and he's going to make a great nation of him. And at the end of Jesus, uh, God's promise to Abraham, Abraham, the text says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What was he believing? He was believing what God promised him. And throughout the Old Testament, their righteousness, which would bring them into the kingdom, was the righteousness of faith, believing what God had promised. So that's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 4 when he talks about Abraham. He says, what shall we say then that Abraham, our forefathers, discovered about this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness. You see, people tend to make two errors when it comes to understanding the function of the law. There's the Pharisaical error, which Jesus is addressing in this text, where the Pharisees and the scribes elevated the law of, uh, above God and worshiped the law. They thought it gave them the ability to receive eternal life. But the law does not possess and never, never was it intended to have the ability to give eternal life. That's not the function of the law. Why? Because that means it's entirely external. Human righteousness, it does not come from the heart. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus makes a big deal of talking about the Pharisees and scribes who, are, who clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is dirty who the outside looks like a beautiful cemetery, but the inside is filled with dead man's bones. He makes that contrast. The people of Jesus' day were more caught up with the ceremonial aspects of the law than of the moral aspects. And they had added man's made rules to, the, to kind of modify and to ensure the, the works of the law. Jewish tradition said that the law consisted of 613 statutes, 365 prohibitions, one for each day of the year, and 248 positive commands. They had so expanded and, and the law that it was out of hand. But finally, the law, when it's observed externally in this way, does not do what Jesus said, what said when he said, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good, good works and glorify God. What happens is they observed it and the glorifying of God was not there. It showed themselves to be holy and righteous. You remember the story that Jesus tells about the, the sinner and the Pharisee who come and, and pray and one says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this, this sinner. And the sinner says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what happened with the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees is that their self-righteousness and pride was the result of their attempts to keep the law. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, the trouble with the Pharisees was that they were interested in the details rather than the principles. They were more interested in the actions than the motives. And they were interested in the doing rather than the being. So that's the one side where people err. 
They seek to make the law a way into eternal life. The other error is on the other side, denying the godly, uh, the, the godly function of the law and divorcing the law as an expression of God's will and guidance for his followers, his kingdom people. To such an extent, for example, that Marcion in first century decided that this was a scripture verse that was mistranslated and he decided he needed to retranslate it and he translated it this way. Do you think I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets? I'm not come to fulfill the law, but to destroy it. He basically turned it upside down. He was excommunicated from the church as being a heresy, a heretic. While some of us these days might not go quite that far, for all practical purposes, there are some that deny the law has any relevance for today. And that's as equally concerning as the other side. So where, where are we? What does Jesus teach us in terms of the law as it re re relates to us? First of all, conversion, trusting Christ as Lord and Savior, changes our character. If anyone is in Christ, the scriptures say, they become a new creation. All things are passed away. All things become new. And that's the righteousness which is of Christ, which is implanted within us by his spirit. And that changes our character. That's the Beatitudes. That changes our character. And then our character out of that wellspring of Christ-likeness, Christ's spirit working within us, our character then becomes the wellspring of conduct. That's why Luther said, when you become a Christian, you can do anything you want to do because Christ changes your want to do. Conduct is guided then by the course which is marked out for us by the commandments. Another corny illustration, perhaps that comes from the world of cars that might help us to see the difference in these. Your car has a steering wheel. You can sit behind the steering wheel and turn it whatever way you'd like to turn it. And essentially it doesn't direct the car in any direction. You need an engine. And the engine is the power that begins to move that car. And when that power is released from that engine, it can begin, then you can begin to use the steering wheel to turn. And you can watch the signs along the road and you can respond to those signs. And the commandments are like those signs along the road that you look at and you follow and you understand where you should go and how you are to steer your life. But it doesn't work until the engine has been installed and is bringing power to the wheels. So what are our takeaways? What kind of righteousness are you trusting to get you into the kingdom? Your own or the righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ and his work in your life? Saying, as the Beatitudes said, blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who experience the transformation 
that comes through conversion. Because out of that comes the power to begin to respond to the conduct that God desires for his children as expressed in the commandments. And in the coming days, we'll be looking at the commandments as we move forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd help us to continue to follow you and to serve you and to live in a way which is pleasing and honoring to you. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for the righteousness that you offer to us. In Christ's name, amen.